the reason why I'm talking about this piece, I love this entire show. This is a show that very much reflects my own personal aesthetic. I'm, I'm very much interested in ideas about abstraction and color. I'm, I'm trained as a modernist. I do early, my field is early 20th century American art, but I do contemporary as well. I actually brought this piece into the museum in 2009, and I have to say, of all the things I've done here, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of, and I think it's a major um, acquisition for the Hirshhorn. This is a sculpture by an artist named Fred Sambach, um, who died in 2003. He was a really, amazing American artist in that he, for 35 years, he had a very consistent vision. Um, from the moment that he entered graduate school um, at Yale, during, I think it's his first year in his, MA, in his MFA program, he developed a vision of sculpture that relied primarily on simple linear forms made out of mundane materials in geometric configurations and for more than 35 years he explored what we would think of as being a very limited set of of media or ideas and incredible what he did is he in one of those moments that we so appreciate with artists he really demonstrated the the, the infinite infinite number of ideas from a very limited set of possibilities um, this is a sculpture that was made in 1990 um, I brought a catalog along to tell you a little bit about him like I said he was at Yale in 67 68, and that was a really dynamic time in American art, um, and especially at Yale. Donald Judd and Robert Morris, two of the most important artists working in America at that time, they were kind of, um, they were put under the, the rubric of minimalism. They used very minimal forms, usually of mundane materials, machine-crafted pieces um, that occupied space in a way that really made artists, I mean, made viewers conscious of their relationship to those objects in the space. And it was during that time when Sandback was at MFA, at, was getting his MFA at Yale and was working with Judd and Morris that he disco discovered this idea or of making sculptures out of wire. And this is a, a photograph right here of, of the first sculpture he made. And what you can see is it's made out of wire and it's simply um, a rectangular form that sits on the floor. And this is the first sculpture by Fred Sandbach. And when you look at this with this piece that was made you know, 25 years later, you can see the ideas that he began to pursue. And so in these other photographs here, you can see that what he started to do was create pieces using these linear forms and geometric configurations. And they always went from the wall to the floor, from the wall to the wall, or the floor to the ceiling. They never really, after this one piece, they never began to really sit in the middle of the space in the way, or on the floor in the way that this one did. What I find really interesting about Sandback is he seems to sit on this bridge between minimalism and conceptual art, conceptual art being the other really major movement in American art at this time in the late 1960s. We have a piece on view now by Lawrence Wiener up on the third floor escalator lobby. It's a text piece, and conceptual artists thought that the idea was much more important than the actual craftsmanship. And so what I think is interesting about this Fred Sandback piece is the way that it, on one hand, it uses very minimal forms. This is, and, and mundane materials. This is acrylic yarn that is bought at Walmart. Um, it's from the brand Red Heart. Anybody could make a Sandback sculpture out of um, these materials. And on one hand, what happens is, is when you buy a Sandback sculpture, what you purchase is a document. It's a certificate, much in the way that when you buy a, a Saul LeWitt drawing, you get a document telling you how to make the piece. So when we purchased this piece, what we received from the gallery was a document saying that we owned Untitled Sculptural Study 1990, and it has 12 dots on it the red and the black dots, and it tells us what color yarns by Red Heart, available at Walmart and other um, retail outlets, to use. And the piece is actually proportional. The artist does not actually, um, did not actually 
tell you exactly what, what size the piece is. It's supposed to be in relationship to the space that it's installed. And so the way the piece works is that, let's just say this is A, the distance between these two points is A, and then the distance here, if I remember correctly, is, is two and a half A. And so this piece could be five times larger than this piece is here, or it could be tucked all the way over in the corner. It could be this large. And to me, that's what's really amazing about this piece. There is no one specific size about it. And I think why Sandbag is important in, 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 in many different ways. One is he was among a group of artists in the late 1960s who were really beginning to think about how we relate to art objects in space. And the idea behind the Sandbag piece is to make the visitor more aware of their presence and the surrounding architectural space. And, and for many centuries, Western artists were interested in kind of ignoring the, the, the architectural space. It was about focusing attention on the object. Sandbag was one of another number of artists in the 1960s starting to think about how the architecture actually relates to the work of art. And so when you come in and look at a sandbag, the idea is that you're supposed to move through the space and you become conscious not only of the piece itself, of, but also its relationship to the um, surrounding space. What's interesting about sandbag is when you purchase the certificate, the question is, well, well, who decides how big the piece is? And sandbag was actually kind of negotiated this very complex line. His pieces, many of his pieces when he was alive were created in specific settings. He would be invited to a gallery and he would have a few ideas in his, in his head and he would bring some materials with him and he, but he would actually create the piece and decide the final dimensions and proportions and actual design of the piece when he got on site. So on one hand the piece was site specific. On the other hand, Sandback, like me, unlike many other artists, didn't believe that the piece could only be in that one place. It could move around. So on one hand, these pieces are inspired by a place, but they can then change when they go to place to place. And he spoke about it in a very eloquent way in that he considered himself to be a composer. And then the curator, who he often referred to as a she, which I find really interesting, would then be the conductor who would then recreate the piece. And so on one hand, this is a Sandback piece, and this is Sandback Untitled Sculptural Study, but it's, 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 it, I should say it's interpreted by me. I made the decision when the piece was here as to where it should go in the gallery and how large it should actually be and how it occupies the gallery and what direction. And that was dependent on a lot of different variables. But it's, it's this very interesting position. On the one hand, it's site-specific, but then it loses all of its site specificity when it moves through other spaces. And a lot of artists aren't willing to do that. Installation artists believe that the piece should be created for a specific space, and those conditions should always be created again and again when the piece is shown. And for Sandback, he was much more flexible about that. Um, I should say, everybody is always wondering how the piece is actually installed. I, I mean, I think one of the things about the piece that's so interesting is that it's so seamless. When you come in, you're, you're struck by the way it seems to just disappears into the floors and ceilings. And I'm going to give um, a little bit of a clue away, but I think what's the way this piece is constructed is part of the American, kind of this ingenious American way of approaching objects. It's a very simple way. When you install one of these pieces, you buy some pieces of metal dowel that are, that are pretty narrow, and what you do is you drill a hole in the floor, you tie a knot and you put the string through it and you, you stick it in and then you do the same thing on the ceiling. And so it's actually, there's no, it's purely tension. If I pulled on this, which visitors do do, sometimes it'll just pop out. But our um, installation crew, our exhibits crew, actually has a sandback repair kit that consists, I think, of a toothpick and some additional string for when the piece um, gets damaged or destroyed. There are some other variables in just, um, each time you install the piece in addition to the idea of how large it should be is how many strings. Um, sandback knew that the piece would be installed in different places and different different sizes and when you um, acquire a sandbag, each time it's installed, you get to make the choice of either one to four strings. Um, this is actually the first time that we've installed the piece here and um, 
the, what the estate requests is the first time you install it is that the widow um, who represents the estate and worked with Sam back over the years came down and helped us install it. And she has a professional installer who helped, who taught our crew how to do this. And um, the way the piece was installed, it was really interesting because one of the things that I was thinking about is what, how should it be centered in the space. And what ended up happening, the, the, my first thought was that it should be centered exactly in the middle line. So this red line was actually in the middle of the space. But it looked really funny when we started laying it out with pieces of tape um, hanging floor to ceiling. And what we decided and said is that it was more important to center the piece in the room with the black sides because the red is actually off center. And those are just some of the decisions that, that it was my responsibility to make. And if Sandback were here, he might have done something very different and so the idea is that this is a piece by friend Sandback, but it's always interpreted differently by every curator who installs it um, one thing I should note is even though it can be installed in many different configurations it can only be installed in one place at one time so if a museum were to borrow our Fred Sandback, we would have to take this one down we would tell them to go buy their own string we would send them a copy of the certificate and they could install it small or large but you can never have the same Fred Sandback piece in two different places at one time on one hand it's a it's a unique work of art but it's not really a unique work of art it's very much like a Solowit um, drawing in that way um, those are the things that I find most interesting about this piece. I think the thing that's, that's pleased me the most since this show has gone up is seeing how people interact. I mean, even just waiting for this group to come down here, I was kind of hiding in the, um, the gallery with the, with the Poons paintings, and it was interesting to see people always smile when they come in here and they spend all this time looking at the floor and the ceiling trying to figure out how it works. But ultimately, it's interesting to see how they navigate their space, and they seem to feel freer. I mean, there's something about this piece that makes people it makes them happy. On some level, there's a sense of casualness to the piece, but then I think they also recognize how ingenious this is, and, and, and it's interesting to see how they navigate the space as compared to how they look at objects in other different in other galleries. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is very architectural, but what's interesting, I think, about Sandback is that he always referred to his works as sculpture. He never wanted to call them installations or even architecture. To him, this was about sculpture, and I think one of the things he knew he was doing was really challenging some of the most basic conventions of sculpture, the idea of having a, a, an interior mass. There is no real interior mass, and in some of those photos I showed earlier, there is no interior mass, and we always think of sculpture as enclosing some kind of mass. He's also redefining the idea that a sculpture has to be made out of material form. I mean, there's these, these, these acrylic strings, but it's, there's no real form to the piece in that way. And so I think it, it is very architectural in the way it occupies the space and it, and it makes people move through the space. But I think what's important is that Sandback really thought of these as sculptures and he was adamant about that for years. Even when they came off the wall and became what we would all call installations, he always considered them to be sculptures and he considered himself to be a sculptor. Well, I mean, I, I, I could see that, but I, th I think what's interesting is Sandback, as, as curators, we're always very concerned now about creating these, these very pristine, white-walled spaces. And when I was in conversation with Amy Sandback, his widow, about installing this piece, I said, well, you know, you need to know that there's an emergency exit on the far end there. I said, of course, the exit will be white. It will not be, you know, bright red. But I said, there will be a door, and it will be a distraction. And, and she reminded me that, 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 that Sandback installed these pieces in very different kinds of circumstances in the 60s and 70s. He, he traveled, he 
he showed primarily in Europe in the 60s and 70s. He didn't have much of a following here in America for many years. And there are these old installation photographs, and you can see him installing in people's offices. Like he'd have a couple pieces in the gallery space, but then there would be a desk, and then over here would be a piece coming off of the wall. And even though we all think about pieces like this should be in some kind of pristine, ideal, white-walled gallery space. What's interesting is that I think Sandback probably would have been more comfortable with the idea of, of desks or sofas or things like this in the space than I am. I mean, to me, it's what part of this that makes this is, is, is kind of how pristine the space and, and how the two interact. Yeah. Does anyone else have any other comments or questions? Uh-huh. No, he, he, he doesn't have any requirements. You just have to follow when you, I said, when you purchase the piece for a piece like this. This is a later piece. Some of the earlier pieces are specified exactly what their dimensions should be. This is a later piece from 1990. And at that point, you just get a certificate. And what matters most is that you use the right color yarn um, from Red Heart. As I said, it's acrylic. And what's interesting is he always specifies that you use acrylic yarn rather than wool yarn because acrylic is fuzzier. He didn't want the line to be perfectly crisp. He was much more interested in being fuzzy. It's not supposed to be, again, defining, it's supposed to be somewhat nebulous, but um, it, he doesn't really care where it's installed. I mean, to me, it should be in a white walled space so you can actually see it. I think if you put it in a red gallery or a black gallery, um, he, you can't see it. Yeah, I mean, but, but you know, ideally, honestly, I was really concerned as how it would look with our lighting tracks, which a lot of people don't look at, but we spend a, a lot of time thinking about. And when I was thinking about how this piece would look, I was really concerned about, you know, would the lighting tracks distract from them? But I think ultimately now that the piece is up, I realize that it's just, it's inhabiting the space with the lighting tracks. And what's interesting is the play between, of the, between the lighting tracks and the piece. And in fact, Sandback was right. It doesn't have to be a perfectly pristine space. It works better with, you know, it, it's okay that there's a door back there that's an emergency exit. Other artists might not be so happy with that. Sure. Other questions or comments? He did one outdoor piece made out of flowers at a European, um, out of red flowers at a European, um, uh, not really a festival, a European just kind of art space in I think 71. And he really doesn't want anyone to know about that from what I understand. I talked to his widow. So that is the only outdoor piece. I always thought it would be fabulous to have a piece coming off the side of the Hirschhorn or something. But unfortunately, he died before I got to commission something like that. I don't think something like this could, the, the yarn could withstand the elements, but he did do this. And when you think about it, this piece, this piece was a bunch of basically very 1970s idea of just kind of this bed of red flowers, kind of how it occupying the space. And it seems very appropriate for Sandback, but he never did anything like that again. And, and the way his widow talked about that piece is that it was a failure. And there's a reason why there are no documentary photographs of there of it. Any other questions? Uh huh. People, people do talk about, and I, I, I've never had this experience, I think because some of the first sandback pieces I saw were ones that wouldn't, were, were, were these box-like pieces. But people talk about thinking that there's pieces of glass in between them and thinking that there's some kind of framework. But I think what that is, is that's your projection of what you expect from a sculpture or an installation. There's just something about, a beauty about, you know, 12 strings, I guess there's three each here, 36 strings occupying the space being the whole object. And somehow the fact that these strings can all really hold such a large space is, is somehow not 
what we think about when we're thinking about sculpture or installation. I mean, things are much busier. You expect them to be much more filled. So I think that might be a projection. But a lot of people had an intern go up to Dia, down to Dia Beacon, where there are quite a few sandbags installed. It was the last project he did before he died. And she said that she and her, and her brother both thought there were glass in the pieces. And I think it's, it's your mind playing. And I, it's the geometric proportions, too, I think. Everything is always very orthogonal in his work. And I think that's probably has something to do with it. But again, it's the, it's, I think it's the way it defies what we think of as a work of art. I'm always amazed that this piece can have such a resonance in such a large space. I look forward to installing it differently somewhere else throughout the museum, but much smaller, and seeing how it plays out then. Any other questions or comments? Anybody? No one's willing to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> There's a reason why you all came to this talk, though, and the question is, is how many of you, I mean, I think what's interesting about Sandbag is that it, unlike many artworks that are contemporary artworks now, which defy expectations or seem difficult or hard or don't seem like art, there's something about this piece that people don't seem to have those questions about craftsmanship, skill, and those other questions that people ask about contemporary art. That, you know, contemporary artists, it, does, it looks like something my three-year-old could make, or, you know, minimalists who, had, who, who came up with the idea of a design of something and had someone else manufacture it. There are a lot of questions that contemporary art brings up, and I think what's interesting about the sandback, at least when I've been in the galleries, no one seems to, I don't see a lot of people kind of turning their noses up at it. It seems much more curiosity, inquisitive. There's something about sandback's work that somehow resonates with all of us in our, in our everyday experiences, and I think that's, that's the power of the work. On one hand, it's very, very smart work. On the, on the other hand, it's a very kind of visceral, phenomenological experience with, with, that you have with the object in the space. But what I think is interesting is when everybody came in, I stood over here and everyone filed in right here and stayed on the other side of, this, of these lines. I kept on having to push you into the space and I find it interesting that a lot of people are not, it took only a few people to come on the back on the side. There's no tripping hazards. Smithsonian safety, these things pop out. If you trip, you may trip, but you're not going to hurt yourself. Smithsonian safety has approved this piece, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's like with any work of art, but I think this piece, particularly the way it occupies the space, is, is, it is a very different presence of, of when there's a lot of people in the space. But I am interested to see how the, piece, how the piece devised the architecture and how everybody came in here and filed in on this side, even though I was sitting over here. It was, and I was trying to get everybody to come in, and, I, and I'm, I, I just find that very interesting. Like, there's only one person who's only a few people who are really in the sculpture. You're one of the only people. And if it were up to me, I would probably be standing right there. But, um, yeah. Right before the talk, for the first time in the many months that this has been up, I, went, I stood there. 
Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting is that we do not want people to touch this work of art. I mean, it is still a work of art, but some, I mean, I think there's this very fine line and, and we're expecting people to somehow be able to navigate that because the security officers, um, one of the things the curator does when a show opens is you walk security through and you say, you know, this is a major problem. We expect this to be a problem. God, don't let anybody near this. You know, I mean, there, you, you put out the certain points. And you think about it when you plan out a show as to what the problems might be. But it's interesting because even though I had told the security guards that this is everyday yarn, we have bags of it, you know, skeins of it back in our exhibits office right now, you know, we can fix the piece, be damaged. It is still a work of art and we don't want people touching it. On the other hand, we expect them to interact with it and feel comfortable interacting with it. So I think in that way, again, Sandback really kind of upends our expectations of how we're supposed to behave. And as you said, these kind of culturally constructed ideas about how we behave. It's interesting, children are the most comfortable in this in this room. Honestly, um, my son, I have a three-year-old who goes to this preschool here at the Smithsonian, and his class came through here at one point, and none of them touched it because they know not to touch works of art, but they had no problems walking around it and through it. None of them went through there, but I think I thought it was interesting that they somehow, I mean, they've been, they've been taught not to touch works of art and that there are certain behaviors, but they haven't been so inculcated that they didn't feel, they didn't feel like these were barriers or glass or mirrors or whatever they were. They're, they're still not that socialized. So it's interesting, but I do feel like kids are more free in this exhibit, in this installation. They may not be getting the same set of ideas, but they experience it in a much more one-on-one -on -one kind of way than I think the rest of us do walking around it or walking through it. Well, and I, I do hear reports via friends who see people touching these works of art, and I'll get a text from a friend saying, I saw someone touching the sandbag, you know? And, I, and, and, and that, that, that alarm, it, it concerns me because people should know not to touch works of art, and God knows what they're doing in the next gallery on a piece that it would actually matter on. But um, I do find it, it's, it's this, you know, I get texts from colleagues or friends who are in this gallery, and they see something, or they see some kind of behavior, and it, 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 it is interesting to see, you know, what it does, but it is not alarm. But you have to find out the hard way that you can walk up to it and that the no alarm will beep. Um, but other spaces, there will alarms will beep. I guess not right now anymore, but the Rothkos were alarmed. Anything else? I have to say, I felt last time this uh, architectural pressure to stay on the outside at first, but, but uh, an ethical pressure, like you would want to promote somebody's photograph. I would kind of resent it if I were seeing this for the first time when they were. Proud of, uh, you know, I, I would probably be a snob of things and get a lot of educated people walking around and wondering about it. I 
Right, but I think what's interesting is that this piece, unlike a painting, I mean, a painting, there's you know, one or two ideal spots. With this piece, there is no ideal viewing point. And so I think that's interesting that you're, you're almost, again, projecting this idea of how you view a painting onto this, because if someone was standing right there, you're right, you wouldn't have a pristine view, but you could just move to another part and experience the, the view. But I think it's interesting that you think that it should, it should be this kind of reverential, pristine experience with, with no people in it. But I think Sandback would be most excited when there was a lot of people in here. I mean, um, during after hours when we have many, many, many young people in our galleries, it was interesting to see how they were all moving through this. And I felt that at one point there were almost so many people in there that you lost the piece. But I thought to myself, well, Sandback might have actually liked that, you know, because there was no kind of control of the space. It was the people, the, the piece began to disappear, which is a very different experience when the piece defines the space when you're the only person standing in here. And uh, another thing that I've noticed is um, photographers who are waiting for people to enter the space before they take a picture that they actually want some sort of reference. And if you look at the um, photographs of Sandbags works, they don't really tell you very much about what the experience was being. And the scale, you have no sense of the scale with the sandbag. I mean like that catalog is, is, a, is a show that was done in Europe and it has photograph after photograph after photograph and there are probably, I don't think there are any people in those photographs if I remember correctly. There are a few photographs of Sandback in the space and this idea that when he talks about, I mean the sense of what Sandback would do is the way his, his, it's described by his colleagues and his wife that he would go into a space and he would spend a couple days just sitting in there thinking, maybe doing some sketches you know, about ideas that might work, and then he would just start installing the piece. So it was very much, it was almost a performance when he installed the piece, but it was also his, the pieces very much draw from his experience of that one space. And again, what I find interesting about the pieces is that then those pieces can move to other spaces and change very dramatically, but they're still a piece by front Sandback. Anything else? Mm-hmm. didn't even go in, and I think that's interesting. And I've been there when the guard has to encourage people to go in. I've seen the guard saying, oh, no, 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 you can go in. And I think what's interesting is that was Sandback's last um, piece, and it's her last installation. And it's a really hard space. There are these brick walls. If anyone's been to Dia Beacon, it's way in the back of the galleries, and these brick walls, they're much smaller galleries than a lot of the other artists. I mean, the, the notion of Sandback, you don't think it needs the kind, same kind of scale, but I think this piece demonstrates that it can occupy a space like some of those larger pieces. But I think that my understanding is that was a very difficult installation for him to do. He had a really hard time with those spaces, you know, and, and trying to figure out. But I think it's, it is interesting that he, he creates this barrier and nobody goes in there. Anyway, so I think that's it. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be around for a few minutes. But thank you for coming. We really appreciate people coming to these gallery talks. And um, I'll probably be giving another talk at some point when the show is up later, maybe on the Larry Poons. I was thinking maybe in January. So thank you very much. <laughs>